Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. Before we get started with the teaching this morning, I, um, I want to pause and, and talk a little bit about what's happening in our world right now. Um, if you've been following the news, um, the world is experiencing some very, very turbulent times right now, and uh, especially with, the, with Russia invading Ukraine. And this is not, not a political statement, okay? I want you to hear this because we as, as kingdom people have a part to play in this. And I, I want to encourage all of us to be on our knees and praying for the world for peace. Um, and I think so often we, um, we forget that we are more than conquerors through Christ. Amen? And I, I, even today, too, after the service is over, please, if you have been burdened and broken with what's happening in the world, stay behind and pray with friends, pray with your family in the prayer room if you need. And even during the week, if you want to find a place that um, is less distracting than your home, then come over here during the week and, and spend time in the prayer room praying for uh, all this happening um, in the world. All right, so um, this is a hard transition to getting into Scripture right now. So um, when Brent asked me to teach this Sunday, um, you know, I was, I was, as I was wrestling with this passage, this, this thread kept coming up over and over again, and this thread is this question that I want to ask you this morning. And I'm going to keep asking this question to you over and over again because this is very important for us to, for us to grasp and understand and accept and believe it and live in that way. And the question that I want to ask you this morning is, who is your king? Who is your king? When you see the text today, as, as it was read earlier by Nathan, do you see that person as your king? And before we dive into God's word, I, I want to mention a few things before we get started um, to, to, keep, to set a foundation for this, for this message. The first thing I want to mention is that this is a very, very common story that most people know. I have friends who don't believe in Jesus, who are not Christians at all, and they know the story. They know what happens. This is a very, very popularized story about Jesus. There are movies made about it, and so often I think we can lose the impact and its influence it should have in our lives because it's so commonly known. So I want to remind us that this is a historical account. This really happened. It's not just a story. It's history. It really happened. There are people who wrote about this outside of the Gospels, uh, who, whose documents we still have till today. And the second thing I want us to remember is that we don't need to look at this text and feel sorry and pity for Jesus because we are to thank him because we needed what he did. And all through, we heard this last Sunday, Aaron mentioned that he was always in command. He was always in charge. As the only true king, Jesus subjugated himself to this cruel punishment. And in John 10, verse 18, this is Jesus saying, before all these things happen, he says, no one takes it from me. This is about his life. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. And the third thing I want to mention before we get started is, is that in the interest of giving this passage the respect it deserves, 
the sermon is going to be a little graphic. Okay, so if you have little ones here, I'm glad that they are here. I think they should hear the gospel for what it is and what did our Savior suffer for us and on our behalf. But if you think it's too soon, uh, it's totally okay. If, if, you, if you take them out of the service, it's totally okay. Um, I wouldn't laugh at you, just so you know, okay? But if they are here, it's great that they are here. It's awesome that they are here with us. So we're going to look at this passage um, from three different vantage points and see three different responses of people to the king, to the, the true and the only king, Jesus. And the first thing we see is from John 19, verses 1, 2, and 3. This is the soldier's response to the king. It reads, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a, in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And I think we need to look at this first part about the flogging part. Scientists and researchers and historians have studied different accounts of what might have happened in this time. Um, and they also have looked at the, the Shroud of Turin to see what, what kind of whip was used. And these whips were called um, the flagrum or, um, yep, there you go. And uh, it this, these whips consisted of, of, of these leather straps that came out of the handle or the grip. And each strap had these lead balls that were tied to it and sharp metal objects. And each of these straps were of different length. And it was because they wanted these, these metal pieces to not clash with one another and lose the impact it can have on someone's body. And with each blow, with each whip, it would literally pull chunks of meat off the person's body. It was horrifying for someone to experience what Jesus did. It was brutal. And people feared being, being killed in the process. It produced deep wounds that could lead to death. And this is, this is crazy because I, I did not know this. Unlike Jewish law, Jewish law had a limit of 40 lashes at the most. And we see Paul talking about that too in his writings. But the Roman law had no limits to how many times they can whip someone in this manner. Josephus, who is a historian, offers accounts of flagellations carried out in Palestine at this time, and he says that the strokes were delivered with such strength and brutality that they exposed the victim's innards. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that this is what our king experienced for us? And it reminds me of this beautiful verse in Isaiah. When I look at this, look at our Savior, Isaiah 53, verse 5, by his stripes we are healed. By his stripes we are healed. It was foretold. He was always, always in command. The second thing we see in this passage is how the soldiers mock him, mock his kingship. In verse 2 it says, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. This, this, these, thorn, these thorns were from a plant, um, most likely called of Euphorbia milai. It was a thorny plant, a commonly seen plant, a flower plant, and they used the branches of this and twisted it to make a crown of thorns. These thorns were approximately an inch to two inches in length, and they were razor sharp. And they used this to mock Jesus. They array him with a purple robe that signified royalty. Imagine, imagine someone, imagine Jesus putting on a robe with the way his back must have been 
after the flogging. And then they hail, they, they mock him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him, they beat him with their hands. You know, this, this, this incident, John does this job of slowing everything down to give us a visual of the last few hours of Jesus' life on earth. And I think he's doing this to expose something to us. And, and Aaron mentioned this last week about how there was a deep darkness, a deep darkness that was there during the trial and all that's going on right now. And I think this exposes something about us too. This exposes a deep darkness that is within all of us. That without Christ, we are, we are sinister, dark people who, who hate God, who have a detest for God. So why, why is it important for us to recognize this? It's because if, if there wasn't a deep darkness within all of us, there wouldn't be a need for a Savior, right? And then no need for a cross. This mockery of a trial and the tremendous amount of physical pain that Jesus experienced, even before the cross, exposes something dark and sinister that's within all of us. You know, our sin exposes the deep-seated hatred that we have towards the Son of God. You know, in Romans 5, verse 8, it's a beautiful chapter. If you have time, just read the whole chapter. Paul says, But God shows his love for us, that in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he goes further in verse 10 of the same chapter. He says, For if while we were enemies, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, should we be saved by his life. You know, I, I want to believe that if I were in this crowd, that I would have been way back there somewhere saying, Crucify him really quietly. But that's not the case. That's not the case. I think this is to show us that we, without Jesus, would have been the, the folks who are screaming, screaming, crucify him. We would have been the ones who had the whip in our hands, whipping him. We would have been the ones mocking him and laughing at him while he was being bloodied and beaten. You know, I think if it weren't, if he were given the right opportunity in the wrong circumstance, and if it's not for Christ, we are capable of committing heinous crimes, each and every one of us over here. If we could get away with it, and there were no consequences, we could, we could do it. That's how broken we are without Jesus. And not just committing them, this also extends and exposes that there is a deep darkness without Christ that we will tolerate, we will dismiss, or even enjoy watching someone suffer that way. Someone, someone who is being sinned against. If it weren't for Jesus, we look at that and enjoy it and find pleasure in that. That's how broken and dark we are without Christ. But you may say, well, I will not do that. I'm not someone who can hurt someone the way the Romans hurt Jesus or the, the, the brutality. I'm not the kind of a person. And maybe you're right. Maybe that's true. But how often do we mock his kingship by willfully disobeying him? How often do you mock his kingship by, by willfully disobeying him? We see this in Romans 7 verse 15. Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. How often do we disregard his word and do the very opposite? Right? How often do we take his forgiveness for granted and cheapen his grace 
as if it were something we deserve or expect to receive from him every time we sin. Yes, God forgives our sins whenever we, forg- whenever we sin, but how often do we just sin and say, I know he's going to forgive me again, you know? We, we have this disregard for him, for his grace. You know, in 1 John it says that if we continue to live in sin, the truth is not in us. And Paul says that we cannot live in sin that, so that grace may abound, Right? How often do we sin with no remorse, with no regard for, for, for the fact that we are doing this deliberately against God? That is mocking Him. He knows your heart. That is mocking Him. You know, Matthew gives a different detail to this passage that I want us to read and look at. Matthew 27, 27 to 31 says this. This is Matthew saying, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. Now, a battalion is about 300 people to 1,300 people, okay, of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on a scarlet robe on him. I think Matthew here is is colorblind, most likely. Okay. (laughs) And twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a reed on his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And then they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head while he had the crown of thorns on. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him off the robe and put on his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Over here we see the soldiers are faking and mimicking what they would do to a king without the respect or the honor, without worshiping how he deserves to be worshiped. You know, I, I, love, I love music, I love singing, I love um, being a part of the worship team, but how often, how often do we worship in a way that's a mockery to Him? You know, when we sing songs, when we say the right prayers without really meaning it, and our lives are far away from what we really are saying, that is a form of mockery to our King. He knows your hearts, He knows my heart. So when, I, when you sing songs and don't really mean it, that is a form of mockery. You know, um, this morning I, I was just blessed with the songs we sang before the teaching, and literally 20 minutes ago we sang the song, and I want to read um, the song we just sang, a part of it. It says, To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need his power is displayed. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future is sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus' blood and suffered for my pardon. And now, and he will raise to overthrow the grave. For this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Look at this verse. With every breath, with every breath, I long to follow Jesus. For he has said that he will bring me home. Such confidence. And day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne the church, do you really believe this stuff? Do you really believe this stuff that you just sang? 
All these empty words. If you really believe this stuff, then why don't our lives reflect such beauty? Why isn't it lived with conviction? If this is what we believe, why aren't we radiant with this love? If this is what we believe, then why aren't we screaming out the gospel to people around us? If Jesus is the only hope, if he's the only way, why aren't we talking about it outside church? You know, I would rather sit with people here who struggle to sing the songs we sing to say, I, I, cannot, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. And I'll, I'll love to sit with you and pray with you and weep with you than see us just sing songs and be entertained because we know what to sing and we, and we love the tune and we know how to pray. Insincere worship, insincere worship is a form of mockery to his kingship. Insincere worship is a form, it's a form of mockery to his kingship. So the soldiers mock his kingship. Let's look at Pilate now, okay? At this time of Jesus, the Holy Land was crawling with militant Jewish groups engaged in a prolonged guerrilla-style warfare against the Roman army. Josephus, who was a historian, um, says that at least five major military Jewish messiahs had kind of risen between a BC, a 40 BC to 8073. This is not counting Jesus and John the Baptist. Lots of was, were happening at this time. And the last thing the Romans wanted was another insurrectionist. And, and we see Pilate knew that Jesus was not that, even though he was accused of that. We see in John 16, verse 19, verse 6, and John 18, verse 38, that Pilate knew that Jesus was, was innocent. But the funny thing is that he chooses to release Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist. The irony in that, right? And I don't want to spend much time talking about Pilate because there's so much we can learn from just his interaction with Jesus and his internal turmoil. And I, I personally think that Pilate might have been closer to the truth than we, we see in Scripture, but I don't know what really happened there. And uh, there's a lot of speculation as to what he did after the resurrection of Jesus. We can have lunch and talk more about that later if you want to. Um, but I want to focus on a few things that we see in the life of Pilate in this passage. The first thing we see is that he was a vacillating judge. We see this in all the Gospels of how Pilate is handling this, this situation here. We do see him struggle in doing the right thing, and he's worried about his appearance of power and authority. We read this in John 19, verses 10 and 11. This is what it says. So Pilate said to him, this is Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And this is Jesus. He says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So here, he's just trying to say, I'm, the, I'm in charge and I, and I have power. Jesus is saying, no, you don't. No, you don't. Because Jesus was always, always in charge. We also see Pilate here trying to please his boss, who is Caesar, his conscience, the mob, and his wife. Okay, uh, In Matthew 27, verse 19, we see this. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, this is he's sitting at that seat, his wife sends, sends word to him, and she says, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So, you know, I think that, that Pilate made the biggest mistake by not listening to his wife. Okay? Um, I, I kind of wonder what happened when he went home that day. Right? So it must have been like, 
he opens the door, walks in, and she's like, hey, welcome home, honey. I'm sure she spoke in English and had my accent, right? <laughs> and he's like, long day. She's like, I'm sure. And she's like, hey, so uh, what happened to that Jesus guy? You know, did you get my message? He's like, yes. So what happened? Tell me more. And I think at that moment, Pilate would have realized that he was safer with the mob outside than at home. Okay. So, well, jokes aside, we see that this guy is trying to please everyone. He's, and he's, he's failing everywhere, right? This is a sermon for another day. But, but what I want to focus on is two, two very, very powerful things that Pilate says that kind of summarizes the tension we see in this text. We find the first thing he says in John 19, verse 5. This is Jesus is coming out after being flogged, right? He, so it says, Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate says, Pilate says to them, behold the man. Behold the man. Okay, homo. Behold the man. And then he says something very different before he's sentenced to be crucified. We see this in John 19, verse 14. It says, now it was about the sixth hour. And this is Pilate. He said to the Jews, behold your king. Behold your king. Now, I don't know if he meant it, if he was being funny or being sarcastic. I don't know what he, what he meant. But he says, behold the man and behold your king. Now, for the Jews, as soon as they heard the phrase, behold your king, it must have rung a bell in their hearts to remind them of the prophet Zechariah. It also connects to what happened the week before when they were singing Hosanna, Hosanna to Jesus as they were waving branches while he rode the donkey into the city. Because Zechariah says this in Zechariah 9 verse 9. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Pilate here is quoting scripture. He's quoting a prophecy that was, that was said about Jesus. Behold, your king. Every Jew should have heard that. You know, when I hear the phrase, behold a man, I can't imagine John remembering a phrase that he heard from John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb, from, in John chapter 1. We'll hear about that next Sunday, about the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But for today, I want us to wrestle with this. You have Behold the Man and Behold Your King. Behold the Man and Behold Your King. And we have a choice to make which do we believe about Jesus. Which one is He to you? So let's focus our attention now from Pilate to the Jewish leaders, okay? And why was it so difficult for them to see Jesus as king? It's because they wanted Jesus to be a political leader and not the prince of peace. They wanted a king who would be their military leader. The Messiah they wanted was meant to be a puppet to push their political agenda, right? No wonder they wanted Bar Barabbas instead of Jesus to be free. And they wanted a king whom they could rule, actually, not the other way around. And they did not have really a category for the Savior, for the Messiah. They couldn't comprehend that God could become flesh. They were hoping for someone like David, a king like David, or maybe a leader like Moses or Joshua with a political bend, right, to still do their bidding to overthrow the, the Roman government. But what Jesus was offering was much greater 
than anyone they could point and say, we want someone like him. He was better than all of them. And that's why when Jesus claims to be higher or better than all these people that they were pointing to and saying he should look like him, they couldn't handle it. They flipped. We see it in John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's now equaling himself to God himself. So what they, they pick up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. These guys were totally not expecting Jesus to be the son of God and God himself in flesh. And in their human efforts to find the Messiah and king who would kind of look the way they thought it should look like, they actually had totally rejected the true Messiah and the true king. And this happened way, way back in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel 8 verse 7, we see Samuel here is rejected. He's feeling sad because the people have asked for a king. They want to look like every other nation around them. And he says, God, they have rejected me. And God says, no, Samuel, they have rejected me, not you, as their king. So, so what is the implication? What happens when we run after kings who are far lesser than the true king? What happens? You know, the answer is found in the same chapter, John 19, verse 15. It says that they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Then Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, they answer, and they say, We have no king but what? By whom? But Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. You know, uttering these words, or even, even thinking about it for a Jewish person, would have been like a, a knife, a dagger in, his, in their chest. They knew that was not true, right? How could they claim that Caesar is their king? The truth is, without the true king, we don't know which way is up. Without a true king, the true king, we are lost and confused. And when we don't acknowledge Christ as our king, we then turn and pay homage to the very ruler and the power who is there to kill, steal, and destroy. And I know many of you here maybe have experienced the darkness that's there out there outside of Jesus who was killing and destroying your life. And praise God that we are now rescued and saved by the true king. Amen. The king they settled for couldn't save them. And the beauty of this is that God uses the rejection of his people to save them and offer salvation. I want to ask you again, who is your king? Who is your king? You know, our king is someone who's willing to take the fullest, the fullest extent of our rebellion to bring us reconciliation with God. You know, as I was processing this teaching, um, this passage, about a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, um, I was processing and asking myself this question, have I, have I, can I, can I relate the level of forgiveness in a, human in, a, in a human form to think about, is there anyone that I know who has taken the punishment for my mistake, for my sin? Besides Jesus, right? Because I think we've heard this a lot in church. But do you know someone in your life that has taken your punishment? Um, and when I was processing this myself, um, out of the blue, I was, remembered, I was reminded of a story of an incident that happened in my life when I was young, which I think um, 
ties in well with today's teaching. And I was like, God, why now? Why, why is this coming up now? And I had to talk to my mom, who's here again for the second service. And just to say, Mama, did it really happen? Because I, I want to make sure that I'm not making stuff up in my head. And she's like, yes, it really happened. So I, I want to share the story with you. And, I, and the reason why I'm sharing this is because there is, there is a connection between what Christ has done for us in understanding the pain that he went through. And, um, and this is God's way of sanctifying me and kind of making, um, making him known through my brokenness. So uh, this, this story uh, begins with, I was, in, I was in India at the time, uh, about six years old, and we lived in a slum in India. And my dad had a church in the slum in India. And uh, this slum was known, was, caught, was known as Jobadi. Now, this wasn't the name of this place. It was known for that because Jobadi means pickpocketer. So most people who lived in that slum were pickpocketers, were petty theft, thieves, right? It was very common, and um, it was a joke, and also it was true about who were living in that area. And there was a boy who must have been 13 years old or so that I played with and knew him really well, and he had an obsession for stealing. He would steal all the time. And he got caught multiple times. My, um, my dad had to confront him a couple of times about what was going on, and, and somehow it never stopped. He never stopped stealing. So my dad kind of had it with him. And, uh, and just so you know, what I'm about to share right now is not to incriminate anyone in this story. And I don't justify what happened, OK? Um, I don't at all justify what happened. And I, but I, true believe, I do believe that um, at this time and the place that I lived, this might have been a common practice. It doesn't make it right, nonetheless. So my dad um, bought a, a bunch of these bamboo sticks that were about three feet in length and uh, about the width of your finger, right? And um, he, he got the little boy to a house, and he got also his older brother, who must have been in his late teens, maybe 19 or so. And his older brother came along, and they locked the door, and they, they, um, they stripped this little boy, this 13-year-old boy, uh, to only his shorts. And then my dad had a list of things that were missing in our house and in the church. And he, he, and he, um, he beat this kid um, and asked, what happened? What happened to this item? Where'd you sell it? How much you got for it? So he went line by line and, and beat this kid. And I remember as a six-year-old boy, listening to him scream and cry, um, looking at the welts, the bruises, the lacerations, and and just in shock as to what I was observing and watching. And I don't know how long this went. This must have been an, I don't know how long. I know that all the sticks that my dad had broke. So it must have been a long time. And it didn't get personal until my dad asked this boy one of the things that were on the list. Um, my dad asked this boy if he had stolen from the offering. At the time, I felt this huge, huge amount of guilt and shame and fear because little did my dad or my mom know. My mom knew about this last week, by the way, uh, of my part in it, that I was stealing from the offering very frequently. And I, I knew that my family was really poor. I knew most people who gave offering to the church from, from, the, from the, the slum we lived in. They had no money. And I, I stole from the offering. 
And for many years, even after I got saved, I could not believe that God would forgive me for it. I couldn't believe that God would forgive me for what I did. And I think that's why till today I have a very high regard for God's money. Um, and I remember my dad asking this boy if he took it. And, you know, I, I noticed that he looked surprised. I don't know if he took it or not. Um, but maybe he did not. And he said no. And I remember my dad beating him until he confessed that he took the money from the offering. And I did not have the guts to say, Papa, stop. It's me. It's not him. It's my turn now. I didn't have the guts to do that. I was ashamed. I was fearful and terrified of the punishment he received in my place. It should have been me, not him. You know, this, this story does not have a happy ending because the next morning, this boy was... He moved to another little village, and I never saw him again, ever again. And, you know, I, I have tried to re, re, replay this in my head over a thousand times and asking the Lord, why now? And also, what could I have done differently if I were younger and go back in time? But the answer is I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. I thank God for counseling, too. <laughs> um, but one thing I know is that, you know, if I had the chance to talk to him, I'd love to love to ask him for his forgiveness. And one thing I know that's beautiful, that's beautiful about the gospel is that unlike this story, the story of Christ has a beautiful ending. Amen? We see that, we see that next week. We see it when we see our king on a cross, enthroned on the cross next Sunday. And I think what, what I want us to wrestle with and embrace at the same time is this idea that all of us were enemies of God. We were in rebellion against God. So we, we begin this journey of seeing Christ being humiliated, beaten in a bloody mess, and we are there mocking him and laughing at him. But then what Christ does, he invites you in. He welcomes you in. And as you get closer to him, you notice that he's taking your place that this is done because you deserved what he's receiving right now. And then our, our mockery, our anger, our rebellion turns into joy, thanksgiving, and gratitude. We say, God, Jesus, thank you, because I, I should be in your place, but you've taken my place. I deserve this, but you are paying the price for my sins. And this is the crazy thing, that the sum of all the pain that he endured was still lesser than the, than the pain that he endured for bearing your sins. The wrath of God at that spiritual level that was not even physical. He bore that pain because you deserved it. But he said, no, 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 I'll step in place. I got this one. And all the sins you've ever committed from the time you were born till the time you die, he took every, every sin and said, I, I got this. I'm going to pay the price for your sins and you are forgiven. The band is, is going to come up and we're not going to take communion today because I think we should sit in this tension of saying, Jesus, Jesus, thank you. We'll take communion next Sunday to rejoice in the fact that it is finished. That the price was paid 
And I think what I want us to, to sit and accept, if you are someone who believes that Jesus is your king, that you are forgiven of everything you've done. You may have done things that are horrible, horrible, that you don't want to talk about. You want to forget about and move on. But every sin you've committed has been forgiven. Fully forgiven. He took that for you. And if you're someone who does not know Jesus as your Savior, He welcomes you to stop living in guilt and shame. We can have joy and peace that only comes from someone who can be God because no one else can take the price of sin upon themselves unless they were God themselves. So God himself became man to take your sins, to pay the price for your sins. So if you don't know Jesus, we'd love to pray with you. If you're someone who's wrestling with the fact that you have been forgiven, you are someone who is bought with a price, but you, you don't want to believe that, pray with us. Because that guilt is no longer yours to bear. No matter what you've done, you're fully forgiven because of Christ and the price he paid. Let's pray. God, thank you for taking our rebellion, our anger, our wrath, our brokenness, and giving us forgiveness instead, giving us eternal hope and life instead. God, I don't know why you would do this to your own son, why you would choose this this method of showing your love. It's so profound, God. We don't deserve it. Thank you. God, I pray that everyone who's seated here will, will remember and be thankful that they are forgiven. They are forgiven. We thank you for, the, for, for your sacrifice. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God and love others.